Hello, so before I go into today's episode of the podcast, I am absolutely over the moon and delighted to announce that a couple of things that are coming up. The brand new intake of the Female Fat Loss Program, which starts on the 5th of September. So the link is down below if you want to sign up for that. And the people in that so far have got had amazing results. And then what I'm also promoting here and what I would love to see and love to meet some of the listeners of the podcast. And I know a lot of my clients are going to be attending this event, which is another event, which is on the 28th of August, 2022. So it's starting at 9am and be finishing up about half four. And it's going to be in the Osprey Hotel in Nace. And the schedule looks amazing. You've got Pilates, you've got tea, coffee, refreshments. You've got a talk by me at about 11 o'clock on Let's Talk Nutrition and Female Hormone Health, the impact of your hormones on weight loss and fat loss and the impact of that. We've also got yoga. We've got lunch. We've got mindfulness. We've got a self-care workshop and a feel-good fitness class at the very end of the day at about half three. So full day of activities, you get a hell of a lot. So I have an amazing offer for you and I do not see any of this discount code. I can assure you of that. So what the offer is, is if you click on the link, you'll get an early bird. So if you use the code group, G-R-O-U-P, you will get it for 60 euro rather than 70 euro. It's a full day of activities. You'll be able to learn about your your body, your, your health, what's working for you, what's not working for you. You'll be able to meet myself. You'll be able to yoga, Pilates, coffee or refreshments. Could be an ideal way to spend a Sunday meeting up with some friends, doing some yoga, getting some motivation, getting some exercise and some mindfulness into your body before the week starts. We all have massively busy lives. Like that's that is a thing. And I think it's important to take a self-care day for yourself. And that's one of my clients literally sent me that message this morning. This is my self-care day for myself. So the date for the talk again is the 28th of August, 2022. And I hope to see you there. So the tickets are 60 to 70 euro, depending on if you get the early bird or the full price. Hopefully see you there. So there's a link in my in the bottom of this podcast that you can click on that, buy your tickets. I'll be talking about how your hormones, your female health and female fat loss, does it make it more difficult, the impact it has on your actual your body and all that kind of stuff in relation to body composition. So if it's something that you're looking for, my talk will probably be on for, I think it's about an hour, with the Q&A at the end as well. So hopefully see you there. Click at the link and I will see you there, guys. Hello, hello, hello. So before I go into today's brand new episode of the podcast, I just wanted to let you guys know that the next intake of the Female Fat Loss Program for September is now open and it will start on Monday the 5th of September so just in time for when the kids go back to school and you'll be back into your normal routine so it'll be the perfect time for you to get back into things even kind of putting things off for when the kids are off so what does the female fat loss program actually entail it's a six-week program and it's completely tailored to you with your tailored training it's perfect for if you want to use gym workouts home workouts doesn't matter what equipment you have it can be tailored to you whether it be bodyweight workouts whether it's going to be dumbbell workouts or kettlebell workouts there's not any hit it's just literally going to be resistance training and it will get you the results you're looking for so there'll be demonstrations with videos on this as well there'll be calories and macros set for targets for you that are tailored to you there'll be education training and nutrition around your cycling time of the month and how to work make that work for you you have a choice of the actual preference or home or gym workouts depending on what you have time for there's free recipe books as well the brownies are absolutely amazing so i definitely get get involved in those 
the recipe books are not a meal plan. The, I don't do meal plans. Dietitians are literally the only people on this earth that are allowed to give meal plans. Everyone else is just Googling it up. So it's not a meal plan. It's my fitness pal friendly recipe books. So if you scan the barcode on the bottom of the page on the actual recipe book itself, it will populate the, the, the ingredients and the calories for you into my fitness pal for you, which is saves the hassle which is a bit that no one really likes in my fitness pal anyway so then we've got a facebook group which is where we will do our weekly q a's where we have our group and you'll have interaction there you'll have interaction with me and then we'll have our weekly check-ins as well and on that the check-ins will be done via email and you will have to fill in your check-in on a monday and then on a tuesday you will get feedback from myself so that everyone that's come through the program so far has had an amazing time so how do you know if this program is for you? It's someone who's looking to educate and learn and get the results they're looking for that they've never actually tried to get or get the results they've actually tried to get. Then there's also someone who's looking for education around their cycle and how their body works for them rather than letting their body run their lives. It's being a part of a like-minded group who can support and work with each other. And that's the biggest feedback that's come through. It is, I can't believe how simple, simple, simple it is, one, and I can't believe that the tactics that you use with us and teach us is so simple and it's really easy to do. The other feedback that's come through is the weekly accountability is amazing. The other support that's come in and the other feedback that's come through is the amazing support network that people have in the group. And they've seen massive changes with that as well. So if this is for you, the next one starting on the 5th of September and the price is 169 for six weeks. So the group link is in the actual write-up of this episode itself and then you've got one-to-one -one coaching as well so there is a difference the link for one-to-one -one coaching is different to the female fat loss program so if you want to sign up for the female fat loss program that is starting on the 5th of september click the link in the actual write-up or click the link in the bio pop me any questions but the best way is to apply for it and your program will be sent over to you the friday before you start and you can ask any questions looking forward to seeing you guys in there and i will talk to you very soon hope you guys enjoy the episode so today's amazing episode is with the amazing Bill Campbell. So Bill Campbell is someone that if you are a PT or nutritionist or you're looking to learn research about protein or any of that kind of stuff, I would highly recommend to go and follow Bill. He has an amazing research review journal out now as well. I was very lucky to get my hands on a very early copy and it's amazing. It breaks down the nutrition from a very, very complicated overview and it brings it back into a very basic generic language that you can use with your clients. So I highly recommend to do that. So who is Bill Campbell? So Bill is has a PhD in exercise, nutrition and preventive health from Baylor University and he graduated in 2007 on that. He's currently a professor of exercise science and director of the, of the performance and physique enhancement laboratory at the University of South Florida. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist from the National Strength and Conditioning Association and a former president of the International Society of Sports Nutrition. He has published over 200 scientific papers and abstracts, three textbooks and 220 book chapters in areas related to physique enhancement, sports nutrition, resistance training and dietary supplementation. So Bill knows what he's talking about. So some of the topics that we talk about today are in relation to the processed food will impact on your body composition. We talk about do women recover faster than men? Is it on lower body? Is it on upper body? Is it overall? We talk about is it better to have protein throughout the day? We talk about is it better to have casein before bed? We talk about protein bars and which ones to actually look out for, which ones to potentially not look out for as well. We talk about is it better to have lighter, heavy reps when you're training, close chain, 
drain to failure? Can you build muscle in a deficit? And then I think the one that a lot of people will be interested in is can you gain one pound of fat in a day? So I'm really, really excited for you guys to listen to this episode with Bill Campbell. So I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I did as recording it. Bill, how are we, sir? I'm great. How are you? I'm great. Thank you. The first podcast guest I've had in Florida. I've had a lot, a lot of other places around the world, but the first one in Florida. Well, good. I, I hope to represent Florida well. Awesome. So, Bill, for anyone that isn't aware of your amazing work and your brand new research review, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and how you got into the kind of the, the field that you're in, the academic field that you're in? Sure. Yeah. So I'm a, currently I'm a professor of exercise science at the University of South Florida, which is in Tampa, Florida. And the research that I focus on is performance and physique enhancement. Mostly it's in the physique enhancement realm. So we look at uh, different diets, supplements, exercise programs to lose body fat and to maintain or ideally grow muscle mass. And my lab also focuses on females. We do uh, more female resistance training and weight loss studies than we, than we do focus on males. And that kind of makes my lab unique. Most of our space is very male focused. Um, in terms of how I got into this space, my original degree back when I was a young guy was in marketing. Um, this was pre-internet or right as the internet was starting. So the world of marketing has changed since I've been in college for the first time. And I just absolutely loved fitness, lifting weights, bodybuilding, nutrition. So I, I, I embarked on a career change in my mid-20s, went back to college and I thought maybe I'll work for a supplement company. And then the more I got into to my studies, the more I realized, man, I really like research. So that kind of put me on a path to wanting to, to um, own my own lab or direct my own research laboratory, which I've been very blessed by God to be able to do. So now here I am. I've been at my, my university for 15 years, and I get to talk to cool people like you because of my work. It's amazing. And what, what would you say is the biggest thing that you've kind of changed your mind on through the research that you've conducted? Because there's so many things that are out there and it's hard to know what's true and that's not true, if you know what I mean. Yeah, the, I, the biggest life, I would say literally life altering thing that I changed my mind on was flexible dieting. So if you had told me 15 years ago, eat whatever foods you want, and still lose body weight, I would have said, no, you, you can't have, you know, really high sugar, high fat foods and, and lose body fat. Like you got to eat pretty, pretty, what we would call, you know, healthy foods. Um, and, and then my lab actually did the first flexible dieting study in resistance trained people. And just through, just through other research and then obviously the, the explosion of online coaching and embracing flexible dieting, I've learned, wow, it really is about energy balance, caloric intake. Now, that doesn't mean that <laughs> we strive to eat as many sugar, you know, high fat, high sugar foods as we can. But it, it, for me, it, 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 it serves my life well because I like to eat certain foods that taste good. And while they're not a staple of my diet, I can, I can appreciate, Hey, if I'm trying to lose fat, I can still have these foods. So I'd say the the flexible dieting aspect of, of, of nutrition has just literally changed the way I view foods and how I live my life. 
I love that. And that would be my similar ethos that I would have. Like I always say to my clients who are mainly female, you're a much nicer person, happier person with carbs and chocolate in your life. So why take them out? But one of the things you mentioned in your recent one, the review that you sent over to me, so thank you for that, was about kind of does eating processed food make it more difficult to make the most out of your physique? And you mentioned suggestions for clients and tips for clients and stuff like that. Can you kind of go into that a little bit more detail? Yeah, yeah, and thank you for for mentioning my research view. I'll just I'll just tell your listeners if um, if you like being on top of the scientific evidence, like if you if you promote yourself or you want to tr- um, structure your programs and nutrition based on the scientific evidence, my research review is called Body by Science, and you can go to my website, which is BillCampbellPhD.com. And you can get the inaugural issue for free. And we talked about just an awesome study that we're going to talk about here in a second, which is like the role of highly processed foods in your diet. Um, and also the that my body by science research review, it's totally focused on fat loss and muscle building. So I don't really get outside of those lanes. So it's very focused. So if you're a physique coach, I think it's a must have. Or if you're somebody, if not a coach or a fitness professional, but you just take your training and nutrition seriously, I think it would give you a lot of value. And I have a launch price for $6.99 US dollars. So if you if you do purchase it, you can get it before I have before I will raise the price after the launch period. So thanks for letting me mention that about my research review. And just a little bit about that study. Um, an incredible study. Uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars were spent on that study because they had all of the subjects. They lived in a facility for like a month. They fed, they gave them all of their food. They had a whole kitchen staff preparing the food. So you're not going to find a better design study than that. And just to give people just a real quick context, they had everybody follow an ultra processed food diet. So potato chips, cookies, uh, pastries, soda, uh, like a lot of that for two weeks. And then they had a whole food or a non-processed food diet for two weeks. And they had a short washout period. And they basically just monitored the subjects and the, the same subjects did both conditions. So for two weeks, they had a really highly processed food diet. And then for another two weeks, they they said, no, you're only going to eat non-processed foods. And they they monitored their body weight. They monitored their hunger levels. Their um, I think their body composition. Yeah, body composition as well. And what well, and another thing to consider with the study is it was inpatient, meaning that they they actually lived in the facility. So the study, as I described so far, is really cool. But the may the probably the most impressive thing to me was they actually matched the macronutrients and the the sodium and the fiber. So the way that they did that was they presented all of the subjects a breakfast that was either high pro- highly processed or not, but w- whether whether they got a highly processed breakfast or a non-processed breakfast, the carbs, the protein, the fat, the sodium, the fiber, it was all equated. Now, ultimately, what made the differences was the subjects could eat as much or as little of those options as possible. But it wasn't like they gave them higher amounts of sugar initially. It was just it was based on how much they chose to eat or not eat during the the two weeks um, of each phase. 
And at, at the end of the study, what we learned was that the ultra processed food diet caused a significant amount of weight gain. They gained, I can't, I, it was several pounds of weight gain. And the non-processed diet, they actually lost a little bit of weight. And the, uh, the probably the main finding that, that impacted me was their hunger levels. And I'll say just where this confused me, there was no difference in their hunger levels during, you know, regardless of what diet they were eating. And I was like, how can that be possible? And we know from other research that if you eat highly processed foods, you're going to be more hungry. And then, it re- then I realized, yes, their, hungers, their hunger was the same because they had to eat about 500 more calories per day of the ultra processed food diet. So they had to eat a significantly more calories to, to get to the same level of fullness that they would get with these non-processed foods. So at, at, at the end of the day, one of my suggestions is, or I guess my takeaway is, if you are going to go on a diet, if you're in a fat loss phase of your life and you want to eat processed foods, I'm, and I do, I, I, I love my snacks. I just, I, I, would, I would put this out there as a challenge. You're not doing yourself any favors if you're having a lot of them. Can you lose fat? Absolutely. You could have a very highly processed food diet and lose body fat. But the trade-off is you're going to be a lot more hungry. And ultimately, you will lose the battle to hunger. You can beat hunger this morning. You can beat hunger tonight. You can even beat hunger tomorrow. But you will ultimately lose the battle to hunger. So that's why it's important. Uh, processed foods would probably not have a big place in your fat loss phase diets. And I, there's just, um, that's why I'm advocate, advocate for higher protein diets when you're dieting, uh, diet breaks or diet refeeds at certain periods, you know, take breaks from your diet every so often. So all of these strategies to help you cope with hunger. So there's a long response to your question. I hope I answered it in there somewhere. But it's very thorough. And I think it explains things for people because I think, People can be scared of having those more processed foods in there because potentially a headline in a newspaper or they've been in certain clubs or whatever it may be. And so it's called like a sin food or whatever it may be. And they're scared of those foods. So to bring awareness that you're promoting that you're not you're going to lose the hunger battle. But you're also saying have some of them on a daily basis. They'll probably make you last longer with what you're trying to do. Dieting is hard enough without cutting out your favorite food. So why make it even harder than it needs to be? Like it's tough enough. Like mentally, it depends how hard and aggressive you go. Obviously, I've done prep for a photo shoot. I was miserable. <laughs> I was really <laughs> miserable. I had no energy. Literally so bad. One of the things you mentioned there earlier on was in relation to the research that you do on mainly women. And one of the big things that kind of comes up in some research is do women recover faster than men? And you have a, you had an interesting study and the, the way you put up the questions on your, on your posts and stuff is, is amazing. It makes you, makes you think and test yourself. It's a, uh, yeah. So it's amazing. Can you kind of answer if, if women recover faster than men? Yeah. So I'll just talk a little bit about why part of the reason for wanting to do this study and Megan Humphreys, was my grad student at the time. So she designed the study. She coordinated the study. It was her project. And we just got that study accepted for publication in the Journal of Strength and Conditioning Research. So that will be published soon for everybody to to read. 
And one thing I noticed when, when I would work out with my wife, especially if we were doing squats, we would, you know, I would do my set, she would do her set and I'd be huffing and puffing, just really trying to catch my breath after my set. And then she would go after me and then she's ready to go again on her second set while I'm like, I still need another minute. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. And I, I mean, again, I talk to other fitness people and it's like, yeah, females, they recover faster. So th- what we, what we did in this study, and it, it actually doesn't support this at all. It doesn't support that females recover faster. And I'll, I'll t- give a little bit of context to this. Um, we did single joint exercise only. So we had our subjects, we had males versus females, and they did, uh, I think it was four sets of dumbbell curls. So working their biceps muscle and four sets of leg extensions. Everybody did a 10 RM set for each set. So how many rep, how many, they chose a weight that they could do for 10 repetitions. And then we, we looked at recovery four hours at later, 24 hours later, and 48 hours later. And for every rest period that we had, or for every recovery period, we did another baseline testing session. So it was, wasn't like they just did their exhausting workout. And then we looked at their recovery four hours, 24 hours, and 48 hours later, this study was extremely well-designed. So they did their fatiguing workout. Then they rested for four hours. Then they waited a week. We did another exhausting workout. Then they waited 24 hours. And then a third time, another workout, and then we waited 20 or 48 hours. So a a very well-designed study. And what we found was there was zero difference in the ability to recover between the males and the females. So how, you know, now I'm forced to say, well, why does, why am I so, I'm not recovering as fast as my wife on squats. So I think the way that I'm interpreting this is if it's a single joint exercise, there is no difference. I think where we start to see differences is in these compound movements, squats, deadlifts, maybe bench presses. But even then, it may not be a muscle recovery. It may be a cardiovascular system recovery because males typically are larger than females. So you have a larger muscle mass. And during each repetition, you're constricting the blood flow to this larger muscle mass, causing, you know, a lack of oxygen supply, which then, you know, with your cardiorespiratory physiology, that signals the brain, hey, I've got to start breathing more so I can, my heart can pump faster. So my opinion, and we didn't study this, my opinion is based on our research, females and males recover the same at the muscular level. But as the exercise starts to command a greater amount of muscle mass, whoever has a greater amount of muscle mass is going to need more time to recover because of the cardiovascular strain or effort to restore blood flow, get oxygen to the, to the, to the tissues. And of course, that's a breathing and heart rate issue. So th- those are my general thoughts. That's, I think it's amazing research. And I'm looking forward to kind of reading that when it does come out. One of the other things that's kind of out there is in relation to protein, because you mentioned recovery and protein is part of recovery for a lot of people. Is there an ideal kind of protein distribution throughout the day to kind of maximize muscle mass? And have you got any tips 
and practical use for and ideas for people who are busy on the go all the time, who are parents or whatever it may be. Have you got any advice on those? Yes. Yeah. I love protein. A lot of my research has been in protein. And I, I think the most important thing to focus on is just your total daily protein intake. So how much protein should you get a day? And ideally you're going to get between 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass. For my American listeners, that's like 0.75 to one gram of protein per pound. So that's a very good range. And just starting there, if you struggle to get that much in a day, which I do if I'm, if I'm not taking any supplements, but that's where I do rely on supplements. So maybe like a protein, a whey protein or casein, some type of protein supplement that I can drink really makes that easier for me. Uh, protein bars, um, with, you know, 20, maybe 25 grams of protein. So those types of things help me reach that goal. So once you have what I believe is the most important thing, your total daily protein intake, and let's just to make it easy, let's just say it's 200 grams per day. The next most important thing is to distribute that protein over the course of the day. Now, this assumes that your primary goal is to build muscle mass or to maintain muscle mass when dieting. So you have your total amount, so 200 grams. Now, what, what's best? Should we, should we, well, I can tell you what's not best. What's not best is eating one meal with 200 grams of protein in that meal. What is better is more feedings. So is that three feedings of, you know, a little less than 70 per meal? Is it two, two feedings of a hundred or is it four feedings of 50 grams of protein? And based on the study that we actually have in my research review, it's the inaugural issue, which anybody can get for free. If you go to my website, I actually reviewed a study where they had bodybuilders, resistance trained males. They, they had them. Um, approximately equalize their protein feedings throughout the day. So breakfast, lunch, dinner, and against another group of resistance training males where they had very little protein for breakfast, a moderate amount at lunch, and then a big protein feeding at dinner. And what they found was the effect sizes favored the group. They were able to build more muscle when they had an approximately equal distribution of their protein throughout the day. And that matches, that was the first study that I'm aware of that, that spanned several weeks in resistance trained humans. But we do have several cellular studies that where they use muscle protein synthesis measures, and they all pointed to the same outcome. It's better to get kind of, um, you know, a feeding here, here, here across the day. So you keep getting these spikes in muscle protein synthesis. So if your goal is to build as much muscle as possible, find out your total protein for the day and then divide that up approximately three to five feedings per day. I think a great sweet spot is four. And for me, that's um, breakfast, even though my breakfast is later in the day. So my first meal, my second meal, my third meal, and then a post-workout protein supplement. That's how I, if I'm, if I'm doing well and following the schedule that I want to schedule, I get four protein feedings in a day. One of them is a supplement right after my workout. Yeah, and I think a lot of people can kind of get bogged down and they hear so much about kind of likes of, say, protein bars and stuff like that. And I think 
when people hear protein bars, they just see protein bars and they kind of reach for it. But there's so many protein bars that are so high in calories compared to other options with very minimal, if any, protein, real protein in them. So I know I've seen some that are like 350 calories for six grams of protein in Ireland, and it's very quick. What are your thoughts on kind of protein bars? Would you rely on them a lot or would you advise someone to rely on them a lot or intermittently? Yeah, I think it's not ideal to rely on them. Um, I think that you could use it as a supplement. Um, And personally, if I don't get at least 17 grams per bar, I don't consider it. So ideally it's 20 or 25, but that gets harder to do. And it's, I'm not a food scientist, but from what I understand, it's very difficult to make a protein bar with that much protein and make it not taste like dirt. So rainy, the rainy bar. We've all had them. <laughs> yeah. I just bought some bars literally last week and I was excited. It was salted caramel oh, nice. and cookies and cream. And I was so excited and I tasted them. Like, oh, it was this disgusting. Um, so hopefully I can get my money back. Um, <laughs> I took two bars out of it. So I do want to say, if you find a bar that you enjoy that has 17, and again, uh, also, if you know how to do your math, ideally it has about 25% or more of the total calories from protein. That's another way to look at this. That would that would kind of make that a higher protein bar. Um, because again, you're not going to find a, a, a protein bar that's pure protein. Again, I it's just be <laughs> disgusting in, in taste. Um, but back to how should you rely on it? Um, I do rely on them to help me reach my protein goal. And I think that in terms of making this a lifestyle, instead of, instead of getting like a, an ultra processed snack, like potato chips or chocolate chip cookies, what's when your country, what would be, what's something that people love in your country that would be an ultra processed like potato chips would be crisps here. Crisps. Okay. So crisps, maybe um, croissants. I, I don't know how, how ice cream it, or we've got, yes. we've got chocolate. We've got, we've got everything. It's just different names for it. Yes. Yeah, exact same thing. Yes. So instead of making that all of your snack choices, I personally view my protein bars as a snack okay. be- and it's now it's a higher protein snack. Now, again, I'm not saying don't ever have ice cream. Don't ever have crisps. Because that's that's um, unless you're a professional bodybuilder competing on stage, you may have to do that for periods of time. So I'm not saying you have to eliminate it. I'm just saying as part of your lifestyle, I view protein bars as snacks, and that snack is helping me achieve my physique goals by increasing my protein intake. And let me say this: make no mistake, a higher protein diet changes your body. It does. It, and especially, even if you don't lift weights, it's amazing. Um, just increasing protein lowers body fat and increases lean mass. And then if you add resistance training on this and, and you're consistent, you have a different body over a period of time. So protein is, the, the research is, is, is fairly long, fairly vast. It's, it's, it's a powerful nutrient. What's your take on the likes of casein before bedtime? And like, does that kind of increase muscle mass? Because I know that was one of the things I've been doing a little bit of reading up on and stuff. So I wanted to see what your take on it is because I know you've done reviews on it. 
Yeah, there is some research that would suggest or that has reported casing before bed improves muscle mass, but there's that's not the correct way to interpret that study that I'm referring to. Yeah. And I, I can talk about this. So let's go back to our philosophy. What's the most important thing that you look at with protein? Your total daily amount. And then the next thing, the next most important thing, try to spread that out, let's say over four times throughout the day. So now let's bring in your question. Now that we have this framework for how we're going to live with protein, if we're trying to build muscle mass and live with lower levels of body fat, casein before bed. Well, in theory, the reason this got popular was because casein is a slow digesting protein. And by the way, if you drink a glass of milk, it has casein protein and also whey protein, more casein, about 75% casein, uh, 25% whey, really good high quality protein sources. So the thought was if we take casein before bed and it stays in my stomach longer throughout the night, I'm not really moving at all. So I'm going to have this longer period of time for protein to have an impact on my muscle protein synthesis. So it makes sense. Do you need it? I'm going to say no. There is nothing special about casein before bed because as long as you're getting a total amount of protein in a day that you that you need based on those ranges that I gave earlier, you're doing everything you can. Now, is there any harm in taking casein before bed? Absolutely not. Um, I, I, I see no harm. And I actually prefer to take casein. If I'm going to take that supplement, I take it first thing in the day because it makes me feel full longer. Now, let me just talk about the study that I'm referring to. They did report that subjects, male subjects taking casein before bed gained more muscle mass than a group of subjects who did not take it before bed. They took it in the morning. So you, if you're not careful, if, 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 you're, if, you're, if you're not savvy about looking at the research design, you would think casein before bed is better. And that wasn't true because what they did the group that took the casein got more daily protein than the group who did not. So they got like an extra, maybe a 30 gram scoop of protein. So now we have to ask, well, why did they gain more muscle mass? Was it because now that extra 30 grams put them into this optimal range, which it did, or is it because there was something special to casein? And I believe it was the former. They actually hit the total daily protein amount whereas the other group didn't. So if you're going to do those studies, you have to make sure that you're standardizing or equalizing the amount of protein throughout the day. Amazing. That's a, a superb answer. In relation to, we'll kind of go into the side of things in relation to kind of muscle building and stuff like that, and words like the weights and like the kind of the performance side of things. I think people can kind of get a little bit confused with the information, like should you lift heavy or light weights? in order to build muscle. Can you kind of talk about what the truth is and what the sweet point is and potentially why? Yeah. The, the research on the load or the amount of weights you should lift, whether they be heavy, light, moderate, it, it really doesn't matter except for one extreme condition, which I'll mention. Whether you lift with light weights or heavy weights, both will maximize your muscle mass gains over time. The only caveat to that is you have to make sure that each set that you do is taken to failure or near failure. And I, I don't suggest going to failure. 
And when I say to near failure, what that means is, let's say I'm going to choose, I'm doing a, an overhead shoulder press and I'm going to choose a heavy weight for that. Let's just say 80 pounds. I can't do 80 pounds, but let's pretend I can. 80 pounds is heavy for me and I can do six reps. As long as I go close to six reps, let's say five reps, I've just, I've maximized the anabolic stimulus on my shoulder muscle for that set. Now, let's say I'm going to do a lightweight. Let's say I'm going to choose 35 pound dumbbell and I can get 18 reps with that. <clears throat> as long as I take that set with the lightweight to, a, let's say, 16 reps, maybe 17. So I'm close to failure. What did I do? I maximized the stimulus on my shoulder muscle again. So the muscle doesn't care if the weight is heavy or light. It cares that it went to near ex um, total exertion, to near failure. Now, the only caveat to this is if you choose a weight that is too light, that allows you to get more than 30 repetitions in a set, you still will build muscle. But based on two studies that I'm aware of, you build less muscle than if you would choose a weight that was heavier, that allowed you to do 30 reps or less. So there is a point where the weight can become too light, even if you take it to failure. Doesn't mean you won't build muscle. Doesn't mean that you're wasting your time. It just means that you're not optimizing. Now, I want to give one more consideration to this. Do you like heavyweights? Do you like lightweights? There's, there's two theories on the mechanism of how we build muscle. One is mechanical tension. So the way that you maximize mechanical tension is heavyweights. A heavyweight puts a lot of pressure on the muscle fibers, a lot of pull. So there's one mechanism. And the other mechanism that we believe contributes to muscle hypertrophy is metabolic stress. So this is where you're doing sets um, where oxygen supply gets lessened. You are building up lactic acid or lactate in the muscle. And that's maximized with light weights. You get that burning sensation that has more metabolic stress. You also get more growth hormone release. So heavy weights kind of prioritize mechanical tension. Light weights kind of um, prioritize metabolic stress. This is where I, I suggest use a moderate weight most of the time, and then you're getting the benefits of all of the mechanisms. So I suggest choosing a weight that allows you to do between six and 12 repetitions for most of the exercises in your workout. In my personal research lab, when we, uh, one of the studies we did in females, we had, we, we, we made them, we, we programmed that their resistance training was between six and 12 reps, 60% of the time. Then we had them go heavyweights 20% of the time, and that was less than six reps. And then another 20% of the time, we had them do between 15 and 20 repetitions. So you can see that we, we hit all three, heavy, moderate, and light, but we prioritize the moderate weights just because that seems to be the sweet spot for maximizing the mechanisms of mechanical tension and metabolic stress. I really like that answer. So hopefully if, if people aren't sure, I'll probably listen back to that part again because it's quite a lot of technical jargon and words and stuff that they may not be familiar with. So I would highly recommend to listen back to that part again if you're looking to answer that question of light reps, for heavy reps and all that kind of stuff. So please do because it's explained brilliantly. But I know. Let me, let me add one thing to that. 
if you, let's just say that was too technical, just do this. Whatever weight you choose, just lift it until you don't think you can do another rep or two. If you do that for every set, not counting you know, your warm-up sets, don't do that. Use, your, use something light and, and easy for your warm-up sets. But whatever weight you choose, just lift it until you don't think you can get another good repetition or two. And you can be, you can be very confident. You've maximized the, 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 the adaptation that your muscle will get from that set. Yeah. And I think that that's, I think that's superb advice. If it's nine out of 10 difficult for the last two reps, you're pretty safe option. That's probably the best advice in relation to building muscle in a deficit, because I think the literature has, has changed a little bit on this in the last little while in relation to can, is it possible to build muscle in a deficit? Yeah. And when you say deficit, we mean that you're on a diet, you're reducing your calories um, than what they used to be. So you're, you're trying to lose body weight. You're trying to lose body fat. Normally the, your physiology works against you. You it's more likely that you will lose muscle mass when in a deficit, but is it possible to maintain or gain muscle when in a deficit? It's yes, it's possible. Is it likely? I don't think I would say it's likely, but it's possible. The way that you can give yourself the best chance to gain muscle when in a deficit is to do the same things we've been talking about our whole conversation. Make sure you're lifting weights and make sure that your protein intake is high. If you do those two things, you're giving the body as much of an anabolic stimulus to maintain or possibly build muscle uh, during a deficit. Now, a way that guarantees that you'll lose muscle in a deficit is if your deficit is too severe. If you're going on a crash diet or you're cutting your calories by 50% for weeks and weeks at a time, it doesn't matter how much protein and it doesn't matter how much resistance exercise you're doing. Your body is going to need to get calories for energy from somewhere and it will pull from, from muscle. So be careful of extremes, but it is possible to build muscle in a deficit. Superb answer. The next question, which I think a lot of people can get bogged down in and can get a little bit overwhelmed by is the question of, can you, can you gain one pound of fat in a day? And I'm, I really want you, I'm looking forward to this answer. Yeah. So can you gain a pound of fat in a day? So let's, let's, Let's um, reverse engineer this a little bit. So there's 454 grams in a pound of fat, and you multiply that by nine calories per gram. That comes out to about 4,000 calories. Um, Now, 4,000 calories, um, can you eat 4,000 calories in a day? Yes, you can. Does that mean that 100% of those calories are going to go towards fat storage? No. So what we know, so we, okay, so now we have some numbers, 4,000 calories. If, if it could all go directly to fat storage, it's possible. It's theoretically possible. We know that doesn't happen. What else can we rely on? Well, we have overfeeding studies in humans. And what we learned from those studies is when they overfeed subjects, they, they gain fat and they gain lean mass. So that we know that not all is going towards fat storage. So I I would think it's possible to gain a pound of fat in a day, but you would probably need to eat well above 10,000 calories 
because your your one thing that's going to happen is your metabolic rate is going to skyrocket um, when you try to eat that many calories in a day. Your body likes homeostasis, so your body is going to rev up its rev up its metabolism to burn off all of these calories that you're giving it. Um, so if you overfeed it enough, I th- I believe it would be possible. And again, this is just my thought. I could be wrong, but I think it's theoretically possible, but very, very difficult. We should we should do a study on that, and and I'll bet we get zero subjects. <laughs> I d- I don't know if you would because I've seen people do like the ten thousand calorie challenge, and I know one of the guys that I used to work with did it. And I, he he um, he recorded it on YouTube. I still think it's on YouTube. Yeah. But it, you have to, like, you obviously have to use, like, really processed food in order to get it. And he was getting headaches for days afterwards because it would throw off some the sugar. He was having, like, Domino's pizzas and stuff. Like, they're two and a half thousand calories are in and around for, like, a medium pizza. So you have to eat a huge amount of volume of food to get to 10,000 calories. Would I advise it? No. <laughs> but so, would I advise it to try it? Probably not. But you can like there are people that have done it up on YouTube. You can watch it if you want. But yeah, the thoughts, the withdrawals, and kind of yeah, just the feeling afterwards. I I I value my headspace a bit too much to uh, yeah to try and, it. And I'm sure they're gaining several pounds of body weight. But how much of that is actually yeah, being? That's the big thing. Yes, and that's hard to measure. You're you're going to have a very hard time. So one thing I would do in my lab is I wouldn't measure the weight of the fat, but we would look, we would take an ultrasound and we would see that the fat thickness throughout the body, again, we can do all the way from the calves to the neck. We can measure the thickness of the body fat storage. And this would be the subcutaneous fat, the fat underneath the skin. Um, That would be at least one way to estimate, yeah, some of these extra calories were diverted to body fat. But remember, a large number of those calories are just going to be burned off. I, I'll bet you these people are probably sweating a, yeah, a lot. Exactly what happened. <laughs> yes. And that's 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 kind of a, a validation that their metabolism is really increasing and elevating to handle this caloric load. Yeah, I think that's amazing. I really hope someone has taken something from that because I think that's a massive fear of when people kind of have a few nights out or have like takeaways and stuff and they kind of like, get food guilt and stuff so hopefully that has put that that to bed the last question i'm going to ask but is in relation to which rates higher than others as a primary motivating factor for weight loss in younger and middle-aged adults and why because the answer kind of surprised me but didn't surprise me at the same time i think people will be a little bit surprised with the answer that came through this yeah so i and you may have to refresh my memory i know i did a post on that on my instagram feed and i remember Older and younger people, I think across the board, um, the 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 was it number two was their their appearance, their physique. What was the you have to re- refresh my memory? Do you do you do you know that off the top do of your I have head? Have it here. I'm gonna have to look for it now. So this is the first time I've ever had to do this. <laughs> yeah. Well, anyway, uh, I think the young people, it was their number one uh, was their appearance. And in older people, I think it was just for, for I, I want to say like functionality, like being able to just function with normal daily activities of life. And then their second reason was their appearance. Um, so young people, no surprise appearance. But what was surprising was in that the older people, the number, the number two reason was appearance. 
And the reason that that this caught my attention was it seems like a lot of people in the fitness space, they they want to shy away from the, the truth, which is a lot of people want to do their fitness and their exercise to improve their body image, to improve how they look to themselves. Now, I can appreciate we as fitness professionals don't want to tell people how they should look. But if somebody says, the reason I'm doing this is to change my body because I want to have lower body fat, then we shouldn't say, well, that's not a good reason. Instead, what we should do is give them the evidence that allows them to achieve that goal in the healthiest way possible. So that's one thing I like to say. I'm, I'm on the vanity side of the, of, of the profession in terms of exercise science. I do focus on physique. But what a lot of people don't realize is that I'm kind of sneaking health in the back door. So an active lifestyle is a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. A higher protein diet is, a, is better for building muscle mass and bone mineral density. And in females, that's very important. You, you have to lay down as much bone mineral density by the time you're about 20 years old because you don't gain it after that. What you have at, as an early adult is what you have for life. Then you just hope to maintain it. And then the other thing is, you know, just the um, you, this active, this physique lifestyle, it, it's kind of a battle against obesity. Becoming, becoming an obese individual is harder and harder and harder. And I, I've been clinically obese in my life. I've been overweight. I, I've, I know this. I'm speaking from my own experience. And I, I personally don't shy away from, if you want to fight that, let me help you. And I'm sure that's what you do. You're, you're, you're helping people through healthy means. Now, again, there's a lot of negative space here as well. Crash dieting, um, eating disorders. Those are all things that we all want to avoid. But to ignore the motivations of a lot of people, I, I think that we're doing a disservice. And I think that kind of links in. Like, I think, I think we, it's, it's, how do I phrase this? In relation to kind of like there's there's two sides of the things with the likes of the health industry. There's those who are like health at every size, and then there's those who want to look their best. And neither are wrong. But if it comes at the expense of your health, that's where the lines get blurred for individuals. That's when the likes of eating disorders, as you've mentioned, kind of come in and come a little bit more rampant or losing your menstrual cycle or if it's putting your health and your mental health at risk that's where the lines get blurred and that's when it's, a, it's detrimental to your health like there's a fine line between destruction and constructing something that you're proud of and i think that's where people can get blurred in relation to what's conducive to and what is the fitness fitness industry like there are the fitness industry can be extreme and has been extreme for years right and you put up one of the posts i think this is going to hit my clients like a ton of bricks which is which of the following is the most important trait to possess when you're attempting to lose weight and the answer was patience why do you think so many people struggle with that patience this can be the last question why do you think so many people struggle with that patience element of it well the, the reason i i think most people struggle is because that's what i struggle with <laughs> so i'm <laughs> i'm i'm imparting my own struggles on everybody else um and I'll, I'll just let me elaborate on that for a moment. I'm, I'm a fat loss researcher. I, I, I believe I've done more weight loss studies in lean people than anybody in the world because um, my research does not study 
overweight or obese people losing body fat. Now I've done that. I have, I did that in grad school. Um, so this is my life. I'm a fat loss researcher. <laughs> it's what I do. And I know what the ex, I know what the outcomes are. I know what should happen when somebody reduces their calories. And I diet a lot. I, I diet just because I, I, I try to learn through myself. And every time I go on a diet, <laughs> I think something's wrong. I know this. I know it takes time. And yet I'm the one struggling with it. So there's my first re I just look in the mirror and I know that people struggle with this because I do. And nobody has more knowledge than me or very few people. So that coupled with what messages do we get? And this is where I think people really struggle. So I don't really surf the internet much um, other than my own Instagram page. I'm not on social media. Um, I, 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 I limit my um, my exposure to mass media, um, but a lot of people don't. And the messages that are are out there are fat loss is easy and it happens fast. Just look at any of the advertisements. So now you're bombarded with that message, coupled that with a natural inclination to think that it doesn't take a long period of time. And I... Um, I just know that people think it's not working after a week or two weeks. And, and I know you've got, give yourself a month. If you're executing on all of the, the, the variables, you're not missing workouts. You have a modest de a caloric deficit. I like to suggest like a 20, 25% caloric deficit. If you do that and you give yourself a month, even two weeks, but let's just say a month, and you base your body, your body changes after a month, you will see progress. It's when you look at, oh, I gained three pounds today based yesterday. I gained a kilogram of weight today, but on Sunday I was, you know, I was a, a kg lighter. Those things are what mess with people. It's the messaging, our own internal thermostats, which are incorrect, and then focusing on daily changes. Those things all work against a patient approach. So that's why I, I, I personally think if we can teach patients in changing our bodies, or at least when we're trying to lose body fat, that's the best service we can give people that we're trying to help. I love that because I think, like, I think as I say, patience is a virtue and I don't think many of us have it. <laughs> uh, no. And I think, and I, and I think what, what Bill said is summed it up brilliantly. I think even coaches and researchers, we do get annoyed too when we don't see the results asap we do get but we we know the data we know how it works and how the body works we too get annoyed but at the same time it's kind of like the voice of reason ramps up at some stage you hope so um bill thank you so much for coming on there's so much knowledge in there and so much information for for people where can people find out about the research review again kind of sign up and download on that and make sure that they and follow the proper research from yourself on social media yeah, so I'll just I'll I'll make it easy initially. Just if you go to my Instagram and DM me, just ask me about my research review and I'll have a conversation with you. My Instagram is Bill Campbell PhD. And then if you have a even if you want to go to my website, that's billcampbellphd.com and I'm giving away the inaugural issue for free, so if you just go there and give me your email, you can download the inaugural issue for free. And in that inaugural issue, we talked about two of our topics, um, processed food diets and also protein distribution throughout the day. And if you are interested in purchasing the research review, um, it's $6.99 US dollars. 
And every month you get a new issue. I, I review two different research studies that are, that are focused on either fat loss or building muscle. So very laser focused on optimizing your physique within a healthy and maintainable lifestyle. It's like it, it, if you are, if someone is a coach or someone is a nutritionist or whatever it may be, I would highly recommend to get the research review. And if someone's just like looking to improve their information, the information is can be complex, but it's it's brought back down to kind of like basic kind of non-sciencey language as well. And it's superb. The the client tips and the the people tips in there are superb. So massive credit to yourself on that. So Bill, thank you so much for for coming on to the podcast today. Thank you very much for having me.